Welcome back to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Holderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the firefighter wellness program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to nickholderbaum.com UFF to get started. Henry Shookman is an award-winning poet, Zen teacher, and author of One Blade of Grass, a Zen memoir. He's a teacher in the Sambo Zen lineage with over 30 years of intensive meditation training. The past decade of working with meditation students has given Henry a keen sense that meditation is one of the most powerful methods we have for addressing the pressing problems facing the world today. Henry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. You had a random awakening on a beach at 19. Tell me what happened. Well, I was staring at the at the water. I was staring at the sunlight on the water and in a in a nutshell i suddenly stopped being a person looking at the scene in front of me and instead became simply part of the whole meaning part of what i was seeing but also part of everything so it was a sudden immersion into a sense of there being one total reality that everything was part of including me and um I, you know at the time i I was stone cold sober. I had zero interest in spirituality or anything like mysticism. I'd never heard the term awakening, nor had any interest in it. So uh, as far as I was concerned, soon after, um, I felt that I discovered what I had been looking for without knowing I was looking for anything. If you see what I mean, there was this sense of like, total discovery of what it is to be alive in understanding it in a whole new level that answered every possible question. But I hadn't actually been consciously asking any of the deep questions. Um, and so it was a really astounding and marvelous discovery. And I think because I knew nothing about um, that kind of possibility, it was all the more uh, astounding. And it was also, I was so sort of innocent in a sense that I just, I just kept like, just sort of, what is this? What is this? And it get, became ever more wonderful until there was sort of nothing. It was almost like there was nothing, nothing really existed. It was just this boundless, I was going to say space, but it wasn't even space. Space vanished. There was no space even. It was, and I was just inseparably part of the fabric of the cosmos. And um, it left me so happy. Uh, it was indescribable and flooded with a sense of love. And and it lasted like that for several weeks. Uh, I mean, the, the, there was a, you know, the, there was an apex to the experience. There was a peak to the, of the intensity of the experience, which may not have been that long. I don't know. But a um, matter of seconds or minutes, I think, at the most. But then this very, very long afterglow for weeks. For a lot of people, this is around the age of their first psychedelic trip. But unlike you, they don't always follow up and continue down the spiritual path or the Zen path. How did you know this was something that you needed in your life? Well, because it was just so clearly, so manifestly of the utmost importance. It was like I'd seen reality far more thoroughly than ever before. It was like this, whatever it was that had happened to me, I knew it was more real than the way I ordinarily understood and experience things. So that was the compelling nature of it, that this, whatever that had been, it was truer than 
my ordinary consciousness. And the very fact that it, I hadn't done a drug, I think I'd puffed on a joint a few times and drank beer you know, mm. as a young English guy, but it was quite common. But I mean, the fact that it was so, you know, having Stone Cold Sober just underscored its importance because it was it was not to be attributed to some random intoxication it was it was quite the reverse it was if it really was as if the rest of my life had been somewhat deluded and now the clouds of delusion had parted and I'd seen the way things really were so the fact that I kind of you know a few weeks later six weeks later I think I went home I was away at the time. I'd been working far from home and I went back to the UK where I grew up and almost immediately had a very difficult time and felt I'd completely lost whatever that had been. I'd utterly lost it. And I was really very unhappy for a few years, actually, before I um, started on, on a reluctant path of healing. But, um, but one of the things that I was unhappy about was to have lost this lost this deeper understanding of things, lost this way things really were. I'd, I'd, I'd found it, which was just the most amazing thing. And then I lost it. And I, I felt bitterly sort of uh, disappointed in myself that I could have lost this marvel. And actually, uh, I mean, I had a lot of stuff to work on when I started in, into the therapeutic journey. Um, but that was one of them. And that was, in a way, that was something that impelled me to keep or when, when I was well enough to, to sort of re resume or, or to start actually for the first time really having some kind of spiritual practice. And, and I, it was meditation that I turned to, which seemed like the only thing that might help in, you know, in various dimensions, including that one, if you see what I mean. Did you first turn to meditation on your own or did you know you needed to seek out a teacher? I went straight to this system that was big in the UK at that time called Transcendental Meditation. It's very, it's pretty well known. Most people who who know about meditation will probably have heard of that. Um, they had a, it's it's very expensive actually to do it. And to the, the, I was a graduate student by that time at University College London, and they had a deal for graduate students ninety percent off their, their price. And so I decided to try it and, um, and I took it very sort of uh, earnestly and I did it diligently and it was great. It really, it really helped me a lot actually. And it didn't really address uh, what had happened to me on the beach at the age of 19, but it did a whole lot of good things for my nervous system, my general state of mind and well-being, And, you know, and, and it also, because I was meditating, I could, I could actually start to, address how uh, unhappy I was and started to, uh, you know, do some therapy and take up yoga and kind of start to really uh, try to get on a more even keel with a happier body and mind and heart. And naturally, you wanted to pay it forward. So when you first started teaching, you used to go into the Santa Fe County Jail to lead inmates in meditation. How did you get into this? And in what way did you think the inmates would benefit from meditation? That's right on. I mean, it was, I, I, it was, it was relative. Once I realized that I wanted to do that and um, that was a program, this was fast forward some years. I'm living in New Mexico. There's a prison meditation program back in the UK uh, where I'm originally from that was very effective. And I, I knew some of the people involved in that. So, so I wanted to see if I could 
contribute in some comparable comparable way out in New Mexico. And there was a actually there was a, a meditation in the prisons program going on in Santa Fe through uh, the Upaya Zen Center, and I joined their little team. It was I mean it really was a very small team, and we would we would I was going into the jail the county jail at that time. I mean, the, 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 I guess the main thinking behind it, and this is quite a, there's quite a big movement of meditation in prisons, you know, and this, I think it's like, you know, well, these, these, these people are in anyway, doing time, and they've got a lot of time. And so, I mean, one thing that, you know, is really a great way to spend time that doesn't require really anything except a seat is meditation. If, if an inmate can be um, supported enough in practice to make it really uh, work for them, uh, it's kind of a, you know, in some senses, it's a sort of a golden opportunity. We know that meditation and Zen can help these inmates or anyone heal from trauma and grief, but how does Zen help us with stress management? In much the same way, which is to say that it gives us um, a capacity to become a kind of mindful, kind witness of what we're experiencing. You know, in other words, um, the I would say Zen traditionally is said to have like a number of different purposes, you know, and one of them is stress management. In other words, broadly speaking, regulating the nervous system allowing the nervous system to get into more balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic sides or more flexibility between the two and and that happening through increased awareness of where we are what we're experiencing outside us and inside us and you know that it would have that really in common with other forms of meditation um the the big difference that Zen offers compared with other kinds of meditation, I mean, to some extent, because, you know, there's a lot of overlap in all of them. But but one one um, key thing is that the possibility of awakening to, you know, that sort of greater, wider reality of things that I stumbled into by accident when I was 19 years old is really recognized deeply in Zen. And it's it's uh, it's not the only purpose, but among the various sort of uh, purposes, so to speak, or motivations for practicing Zen, that is high on the list. And if people are interested in that, Zen has got methodologies that will really help them encounter that and, and more importantly, perhaps kind of integrate it in ordinary life. There's a Zen saying that goes, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. If our actions are the same, how are we different before and after? That I, the me, the one who's doing those things. You know, before, uh, we don't really doubt that I am some kind of fixed, stable, solid thing that is located somewhere in the middle of me, maybe in the middle of my skull, maybe in the middle of my, my sort of behind my breastbone. Maybe it's even mobile, but it's some kind of little nugget or bubble or something called me called i that floats around my body somewhere within my skin bag i own this skin bag i own i am the experiencer of these uh, senses i'm the one who's 
who's thinking and hearing and seeing and smelling and so on. And actually, that is a very uh, slippery assumption to, to be building our lives on because it turns out if we really get settled and still and concentrated in our practice and we start examining what exactly is this sense of me that is so intuitive and seems so natural, if I really start looking into it, what is it there? And the more closely we examine the pieces that we feel make up who we are, the more we start to realize that, first of all, there's nothing but the pieces and the, the I is an addition. And if we go even further, we see that there aren't even any pieces and actually there simply isn't anywhere that an I could possibly even exist. It's all one incredible boundless, in the Buddhist term, emptiness. <laughs> mm. And um, But the beautiful thing is that that very emptiness is constantly functioning and the way it functions is by producing this very exact moment when Henry and Nick are talking to each other who if you're listening to this you're listening you're in whatever context you're in this moment just as it is and I mean right now as you are hearing this this moment is arising from nothing Zen in the art of podcasting <laughs> There's Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance, Zen in the art of riding, there's Zen in the art of archery. What does that mean, Zen in the art of? Is it referring to the practice of? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, the, the, that was greatly popularized mid 20th century, right? The first there was that book, Zen in the Art of Archery. That came out in, I think, the 40s or early 50s or something by this German guy studying archery, Zen style archery in Japan. And then and then that was picked up and morphed into Zen and the art of. I don't know why that little switcheroo happened, but from in to an, and, but it did happen. And the idea is, I mean, the way that came about actually is like, um, there are a number of, I mean, this is, this is drilling down a little bit into getting into the weeds a little bit with Zen history, but basically in Japan, you know, Zen kind of infused a lot of life and culture in Japan over the millennia since it came in around 800 CE, something like that, then started coming to, to Japan. It was massively influential on the culture of Japan. And there are things that there's this term in Japan, way of, like for example, way, the way of tea, it's chado, it means the way of tea. And then there's, you know, archery, kendo or whatever, or swordsmanship, kendo and like kudo, I think is the archery. And, and that all of them mean way of, the feeling, I think, in translation was that if you just said the way of tea, you didn't realize how much Zen had infused it in English. So better to call it Zen and the way of gardening or whatever. And then that got morphed. Well, it's not so, it doesn't sound so English. So they morphed it to Zen and the art of. I think that's how that came about, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. And then that became this catch-all term. I mean, it's insane how wildly popular that term Zen and the art has become, you know, I mean, I, I once looked into it, there's thousands of articles that have Zen and the art of something as their title. And it could be anything as, you know, there's Zen and the art of casino gaming. There's Zen and the art of changing diapers. There's Zen and the art of, you know, whatever, whatever you name it, there's probably an article or a book that has been 
given that honorific title to that activity, whatever it may be. But the, yeah, the, there is there is something to it, you know, not just historically, because it's like one of the things about Zen is, yeah, of course, it's mindfulness, mind sort of training to be more attentive and more aware. Those two things primarily aware and attentive, you know, so there's a kind of broader awareness and a more exact awareness at the same time. And but in Zen, here's a little different emphasis to other kinds of meditation as well. It really wants it to come into activity, into action. Mm -hmm. It's not just like what state of mind can we can I get into when I'm sitting down and doing my 10 or 20 or five hours or whatever of mindfulness, you know, 10 or 20 minutes or multiple hours, whatever it may be. It's about when I'm doing all the activities and tasks and chores even you know that i do through my day what would it mean if i did them with a with wholehearted engagement how like so i'm doing the washing up oh boy i just got to wash these dishes no like what is it if basically there's nothing more important than these dishes right now because this is what is happening in my one precious life right now and you know it's not only that i have one precious life i only have one precious moment at any time zen isn't just sitting and doing a meditation it's living so that we're really giving um, you know i want to say sort of loving attention a wholehearted attention to what we are doing as we're doing it. And it's such a shift in how we experience life if we just do that. And it's amazing going to any, 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 anybody who's been to Japan, I recommend like, you know, there's trains everywhere, right? Thousands, thousands of rail networks or whatever in Japan, it's brilliant. Get up to the front and, and often you can up at, you know, if you're in the front of the front carriage, and these little commuter trains that are rattling around all over the all over the place. You can often see like into the driver's compartment. You know, they they very commonly, I think the one or other blind will be open. You'll be able to see what the driver's doing. They typically stand there wearing white gloves, and you'll see that they're doing all kinds of gestures and pointing at things and even speaking to themselves even though they're standing alone in the, in the driving compartment that and that's because they're trained to every time they're going to do something adjust some control they point at it and name it and then they do whatever the adjustment is throughout the whole process and they they do this because they found that the japanese trains were phenomenally efficient you know like it was less than 1% that arrived late and incredibly rare that they had any serious problems, but they wanted to have none <laughs> and, they, and, they, and, and perfect efficiency. And they found out that making sure every train worker was totally mindful, increased efficiency, even to a higher degree. And the great way to increase the mindfulness of what they're doing is for people to name what they're doing right before they do it. You see what I mean? Right. So just call it out. Dishes. Point at the plate before you pick up the dirty plate. 
point at the brush, brush before you pick up the brush. You know? <laughs> that, that sort of mindset. So the, the mindfulness in Japan, I mean, they've been doing it for, you know, many centuries. So it's a, it's a mindful culture, actually. I think it's, I mean, I'm sure, of course, not perfectly, but it's built into life more. Like, for example, in Japan, when I stay with friends, when they do recycling, they have like nine or 11 different recycling bins. The aim is to have no trash, nothing but recycling. And they realize the only way you can possibly do that is if you in the home sort it out properly. So you don't just throw all the recycling in one bin. That's crazy. You've got plastics of different kinds. You've got paper of different kinds and cardboard. You've got little cellophane windows and envelopes, they can't go in with the paper, obviously, you know, because they're not paper. So you sort it all out. So by the time you've done that, with all the different kinds of cardboard and paper and, and metal and plastic, uh, you know, you've got 11 bins and you, you do them all and, um, and they all get collected separately. And so the whole, and the whole you know, culture and society accepts that. They don't want to be wasteful and wildly wasteful like we are in this country, alas, and in much of the modern West, you know, we're spectacularly, spectacularly wasteful. And um, so I think we've got a lot to learn from a mindful culture. Hopefully we'll become one. There's definitely yeah. something beautiful about living with that level of intention before this podcast, I was just stacking wood and I wasn't pointing at the wood and naming it, but it does. When you assign a task to it, it allows a sort of ownership there. And it's like Zen is the death of multitasking. You're doing one <laughs> thing, you're stacking wood, you're just stacking wood. Yes. And it doesn't it feel good, you know, to be attending like that to any particular task? W wouldn't you agree? I totally, like I totally agree. There's Zen in everything that you do. If you I guess if you focus enough now, no one has written the book of Zen in the art of firefighting yet. Are some things not meant to be Zen like, or can Zen be found in chaos as well? That's a great question. I mean, I, I think that there's, there is nothing that Zen can't be applied to because it's, it's a human mindset, you know, and I don't believe that there would be a situation where it wouldn't have some applicability. I mean, there are, there are, if we just take that, your question as it is like i mean there have been times through the history of zen when zen practitioners have faced extremely chaotic and difficult times there was a absolutely uh, devastating civil war in china in the eighth century which was right around you know one of the high points of zen actually because zen started in china really by the way even though we think of it as japanese it's known as chan in china and that word became zen in Japan, um, depends how you view it. Some people say it really started in India uh, with deep early Buddhism and kind of got passed into China, uh, you know, in the early first millennium. But anyway, w whatever the realities of it, scholars agree that it was going by about the fifth, sixth century in China for sure. Hmm. And uh, so that's the centuries, fifth, sixth century CE, by the way. So there was this civil war in 8th century China that you know, is said to have been one of the most devastating wars in human history in that by some reckoning it wiped out two thirds of the Chinese population of, that, of the time over an eight year period. That's to say from 51 million to 17 million. That's including 
famine and disease that were caused by the war. Um, and, and some scholars question that, that number anyway. But regard, regardless, it was a very, very difficult time in China. And to have some people whose nervous systems managed to stay stable through it, whose capacity to stay online with their prefrontal cortex, basically, and not get into overwhelm or chaotic mind states. I mean, to have that capacity in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances is, is incredibly valuable um, for everybody involved. And of course, for the practitioners themselves. I mean, there's a lot of research, I think, now on trauma and how um, actually, and, and PTSD and how I mean, I'm sure, Nick, you'll you'll know about this maybe more than I do, but I think there's a lot of research saying that keeping online, keeping the prefrontal cortex online, keeping a vec ex keeping executive function online in very challenging situations that might be traumatizing, um, that very capacity reduces the likelihood of getting traumatized and of having PTSD. And it also enables us to stay helpfully functional which is critical in what may or may not cause trauma right so um i would see a lot of benefit from uh the kind of training of mind and heart and nervous system that zen offers for people facing very uh difficult situations where that are commonly traumatizing and you know one of the things i mean you're asking about stress relief early or stress reduction i mean one of the things that zen really brings to the picture of meditation generally is that it it really does have this i want to say sort of vaster view it's got this vastly bigger perspective it can zoom right in on details beautifully but it's also coming from this huge perspective and it, which it contains in its kind of, in the DNA of Zen practice, as it's come down over the centuries, over the millennia, there's this huge perspective where it's not even just like a big historical perspective or a big sort of spatial perspective. It sees this perspective of like universes coming and going kind of thing. It's like, it's such a big perspective that that, you know, what's happening right here now is arising just as it is and yet it's arising out of a timeless kind of zero you know and so to have some awareness of that however slight it puts things in a different perspective it's sort of like the stoics where they take that view from above right yes there's a lot of overlap here which i'm realizing is the stoics have a saying where they say uh, how you do something is how you do everything. And I think Zen has a, a similar saying. So if you can buy, find your Zen in this task, then you should be able to find your Zen in, in any task. Yes, that's beautiful. Actually, I didn't know that Stoic saying. It's right on. It is, it's, it's, yeah, it's, that's a bullseye for Zen, actually. Like the old saying, you will never be happy if you continue to search for happiness. Will you ever find your Zen if you continue to look for Zen in everything? <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. It's like um, we don't look for it. We just train, right? It's different. We just train. Zen training is, is endless. You never get to the end of it. 
actually. And instead of that being daunting, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. I'm so happy to be personally, and I, I see this in others, it's a really happy thing to be engaged in a project you will never complete. And the Zen thing is like it, it just can't be reached. It's fantastic. Actually, more and more further we go, more and more it feels like we're sort of joining a process of sort of universal unfolding that's happening. You've said the word happy means there is no weight in your belly. Do you have techniques for cultivating this weightlessness? Yeah, you know, daily meditation helps and being aware of what that weight feels like when it's there, being able to know it's there and give it space. So in other words, there might be, if I get stressed in, this, in whatever way and there's some weight in my belly, I don't want to hide it. I don't want to not know it. I don't want to deny it. I don't even want to be free of it. I want to just take it as what's happening now. If it's not happening in my sitting, I want to try to create enough awareness when I can. I can sort of tend to it. Basically, I want to love it. I want to love it. So I, I can become aware of it. I can become aware that there's a loving space around it that is weightless. So then I got the weight and I got a weightlessness around it. And once there's weightlessness around it, the weight is totally free to be there as much as it wants. And once it's free to be there, it's not a problem anymore. And once it's not a problem, it can, what they call self-liberate. It can free itself because there's, there's no objection to it. It's fully, fully welcomed. So that's a, one technique. How are your days different when you don't meditate compared to when you do? I mean, what do you notice about your internal state? Well, to be honest, I, I meditate every day. So, um, but I, I almost, in a certain sense, um, kind of want to say, I don't need it the way I used to. It's like, I just do it anyway, um, because it's just part of what I do. And um, every day, it's just part of my life. And, you know, those days I, 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 uh, I do it much more, if, for example, on retreat time. But I always do. I always do it every day. I just think it's um, it's just a given. Um, but I, of course, I I mean things happen in life. You know, I, I'm a father and and a husband and a son and a brother and you know. And if 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 my loved ones are having a hard time, something difficult happens, I feel it. You know, it's not like I'm a zombie or something. I I feel it. I maybe feel it deeply and and um, and um, and I want to. I want to be uh, kind to myself. I want to be kind to, to difficulties I may go through so that I can be maximally helpful to people I'm close to and, and of course, a wider circle of people as well. So ever-widening circles of people, you know. Um, so the factor for me isn't do I, a day when I don't meditate or not. It may, maybe just be a day when there's some difficult news that somebody I love is having a hard time or some, some another blow to well-being in the, in the nation from some unthinking politician, you know? That, that, that's a, it's, I'm not happy about that when I can see uh, people in positions of authority and responsible responsibility above all who are behaving in deeply irresponsible ways. I, I don't feel good about that, you know? Um, but um, so in other words, 
I'm not living in some mountaintop isolated from the stirrings of the human heart, you know? I'm curious if you have a current walking practice. Do walks play an important role in your happiness? <laughs> uh, yeah, I walk or run every day. And um, I'm so happy, actually, because I've been... For years, I, I didn't run because I, I would get this knee pain anytime I tried to. And I got really systematic about it about a year ago and started like slowly, slowly building up. And these days I run quite happily for several miles. Um, well, well, actually, wait a minute, like four miles, four and a half miles would be about my, my maximum. But I do it maybe three times a week and I just love it. So I do that and I, and uh, in other words, exercise is part of my, is part of my um, maintenance. And I do yoga and I, yeah, I walk. If I'm not running, I'll walk as, I'll walk that day. Sometimes I do both, but I love ambling, strolling. It's, uh, yeah, it's, um, I, I try not to make it, I mean, I want to just freely amble. If, like if I'm doing it with a friend, we chat. Mm -hmm. If I'm alone, I might listen to a podcast or I might listen to a book or I might just freely amble and be open to the sights and sounds. Walking might be the original meditation. If Zen is something that we do, walking is what we do. It's what makes us human. Yeah, I know. I've wondered about that. It seems to be so incredibly good for us. So I think some Irish psychologist recently wrote a book called This Brain Was Made for Walking. I, the theory that, you know, is just one of the best things we can do for our nervous systems. So there's this Zen proverb that I was hoping you could unpack for me that goes, if you understand things are just as they are, if you do not understand things are just as they are. What does this mean? I don't know that one, but to me, it would mean whether or not we get it, it's true anyway. I would take that to be a pointer to the fact that if we're in a life of growth through, for example, meditation practice, meaning that we, we're growing in ways we don't, didn't really know we could grow, or we may have heard about it, but we didn't know what it means until we actually start to grow in those ways ourselves, ourselves then the way things look never stops changing. Mm -hmm. so as us, as we change, our view of things changes. So our perspective can never stop changing. In other words, the way things look to us can be ever fresh, ever new, because we're changing. Because our perspective is always sort of contingent it's always conditioned on things and those conditions change as long as we're open to it and flexible and don't cling our perspective keeps changing and as it changes the way things look changes and that includes the past by the way i mean as we develop grow mature whatever the way the past looks to us changes and then what does it mean to see things as they are, not as we are? The more that we're attached to self and ideas of who we are and ideas of our self, the more things will be colored by that. We'll, the way we see things will be colored by 
what we're thinking about ourselves. When we're free of self, we are open in a totally different way. And, you know, it's, 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 uh, that's where there's such peace and beauty and appreciation and love because, you know, we can see things as a gift. Every moment really is a, is a boundless, infinite gift. And if we're all caught up in ourselves and what we're trying to wrestle with within and be this way and be that way and have this and have that, if we're really, you know, living a life that's dictated by uh, a core sense of me and what what I think I need and what I think I don't need, then in a way we, we, we can't really receive the gift of any moment which is freely given um, and and infinitely sort of miraculous but not it we, we can't we can't we can't receive it if we're busy thinking about you know gotta have this mustn't have that you know we, our minds are just so clouded by those um desires and aversions hmm. in buddhist terminology animals seem to be free of self i mean they don't put emphasis on right and wrong or good or bad or the the past or future they just see things as they are and they they also understand that suffering doesn't always happen for a reason and they freely acknowledge the nature of life why don't we strive to be more like animals in this way <laughs> maybe we do i mean maybe when we're when we're sitting and being still we're doing something that animals do quite easily. Most animals, I think, have some time of stillness. I remember seeing this nature film where, uh, you know, a group of gorillas were this, this, this uh, naturalist or primatologist, or whatever, who was working with them, would find they did this from time to time. They just sit still and stare. And actually, in this particular nature film, there was this line of sort of five or six of them staring motionless at this bush. And actually on the bush, there was a little bright green, emerald green lizard slowly walking from leaf to leaf across this bush. And they were just sitting there staring at this <laughs> little creature, you know, and that kind of openness to um, the beauty. I mean, it's, it, it seemed like, I, I, you know, they were just captivated by the color of this little creature and the way it was moving. And, you know, the leaves would sort of dip as it put its weight on one with one little sucker and paw, you know, and then the next one. And they were just kind of mesmerized by watching this beautiful little thing moving. Now that kind of stillness and openness of heart and mind, you know, allows us to see beauty in the simplest things, you know, just like a shadow of a leaf on a wall, you know, just every moment, probably, really, in a certain way, beauty is showing itself. And I mean, of course, that's not to deny that very difficult things happen to us. But how we, how we uh, 
sort of a restore ourselves and uh, feed and nourish our hearts is in part by being still and being open. I mean, to really be here now, we have to have some inner stillness, actually. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're kind of rushing ahead to the next thing. How would you describe the difference between the here and now that belonged to you before you started practicing and the here and now that you belong to now? I think you already contained some of it in the question. You said one was that that belonged to me and the other was I belong to it. That was a very good switch. At least I think I heard that. But it depends how far back I go. I mean, if I go back to my early 20s, when when I started to practice in a consistent way, um, I was, I mean, I was really a very unhappy person. I was, I was uh, almost constantly in the grip of some degree of anxiety. And, um, and um, um, these days, I mean, somewhere way back along the way, that shifted, that shifted. It's not that I never get anxious, but a lot of the time I feel very grateful and appreciative and uh, I mean I don't want to sort of uh, you know sing my own praises or anything I mean I'd say that I'm I'm more open to uh, I seem to experience three key sort of emotional states quite commonly these days which I see as like really helpful ones and one of them is gratitude and another one is humility um, to be humble and sort of, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, whatever that means for, for, for anybody listening, I think humility for me is like a, just a sense that I, you know, I, I've got significant drawbacks and weaknesses and I, and I kind of, I kind of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm open to acknowledging that, you know, and, and I, I know that I've got, um, vulnerabilities as well you know and I'm open to all that and then the and then the third state is compassion that you know real feel feel feeling concern for the well-being of others and um and really wanting others to be happy and well um and being sad when they're not and those three states are more commonly present in my heart than for sure used to be the case. Falling in love with the now is one of the four zones needed for healthy awakening. What are the other three that you cover in your new program, Original Love? <laughs> well, the first is, is, is mindfulness. It's that, and I see that as a key element in that is actually self-love. It's something that doesn't get talked about so much in Buddhist circles and uh, maybe not in mindfulness generally, but some self, yeah, tending, self-cherishing, self-appreciation, self-love, mm-hmm. like kind, above all sort of being kind and compassionate towards ourselves. Because a lot of people, when they start meditating, as they, as they sort of get a little bit deeper into it, they start finding that there are difficult emotions that they're quite commonly having that were sort of just under the surface kind of rushing through life they were able to not 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 acknowledge them not feel them so much but as they start dropping into pockets of stillness in their life maybe a bit of stillness each day it becomes harder 
not to recognize, man, there's a difficult feeling here. And being very kind to ourselves around that is something that I, I'm trying to teach people in this program, Original Love. The second zone, so to speak, is that um, meditation is not actually a solitary pursuit. You know, a lot of people think it's just like down to me. I've got my app. I do my time each day. It's me, me, me. I got to do it. You know, wrong. Uh, actually, the world of meditation is full of support, and it's and it's and uh, the old Buddhist view is that you can't have a successful practice without um, having community of fellow practitioners and some amount of guidance and. Um, and and acknowledging the examples of people who have gone before us in this practice and so those are all forms of support and and you know we can the more we explore support the more we realize that um you know our our, our very existence is is just totally dependent on a trillion causes and without any one of them i wouldn't be here mm. and so that's humbling but it's also nourishing to realize that i'm deeply supported deeply deeply supported some i mean one guy one old zen master was asked what zen is and he said it's infinite support mm. infinite support and so finding zen going deeper into zen going deeper into our mindfulness and our meditation is to start to discover infinite support and yeah the third zone is like i think of it as flow states known in the business of meditation as samadhi, which I, I feel is like merging with the moment. I call it falling in love with the moment. And then the fourth zone is awakening. Mm. So there's a, there's a hazard if we're awakening being seeing through the self and seeing through the world, essentially, in a nutshell, discovering that there's a oneness that pervades everything and discovering that the sense of self has been an illusion are the two key ingredients of real awakening it's a very big deal really to either of those is a big big deal to find for real but this, and so it's understandable those who are interested in it really can pursue it doggedly but actually to pursue it without having the other zones the other three as well can be unbalanced so we need to discover infinite support on this great cosmic journey of uncertainty if you'd be so kind to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now? You know, I've been listening to this whole series of novels by a 19th century English novelist that I never wanted to read before called Anthony Trollope. And he's like a just sort of second place to Dickens. You know, he's I think he's slightly less famous and but he's he's a big figure in English literature and I I've been really loving them actually. I've been reading <laughs> he's got two big sets of novels one called the Barsetshire novels and one's called the Palliser novels and I'm in the Palliser ones right now having done all the f the other one the other set uh, it's really fun there's uh, they're on audible with a great actor called Timothy West reading them well thank you for sharing and then if you were forced to give away all of your books except for one which would you keep oh man it's between Shakespeare and the Bible Shakespeare if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? The person who comes to mind is Hitler. I just want to see if there's any chance of exerting any tiny bit of leverage, any tiny bit of 
adjustment of course of trajectory it's a major challenge but that's who popped up when you asked the question right now I would love to sit in on that conversation. Well, Henry, it was really great talking with you today. I'll have links to your books in the show notes. Where else do you want people to go to connect with you? Thank you. There's mountaincloud.org and there's originallove.org. Two places that will sort of get you in to the ecosystem that I'm part of that's uh, all about helping people with their meditation practice. So kind of you to have me. Thank you very much, Nick. And I'm very uh, admiring and, and real sort of in awe of what you do. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.